This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the release of Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange with a special series of podcasts exploring Kubrick's work and his relationship with Burgess. In this episode, the Burgess Foundation's Graham Foster talks to writer and lecturer Filippo Olivieri. Filippo is Italy's leading expert on Stanley Kubrick. His books are 2001 Between Kubrick and Clark, The Genesis, Making and Authorship of a Masterpiece, and Stanley Kubrick and Me, 30 Years at His Side, the memoir of Kubrick's personal assistant Emilio D'Alessandro. Filippo also adapted the latter for the screen under the title S is for Stanley. He has most recently written a chapter on Kubrick's unmade films for the Bloomsbury Companion to Stanley Kubrick, which is out now. Welcome, Filippo, to the Burgess Foundation podcast, and thanks for joining us uh, to talk about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Let, let's start by by talking first about how Kubrick uh, first came across A Clockwork Orange. Uh, what do you think he saw in Burgess's novel that made him want to adapt it? Right. Um, Kubrick had received a copy of the novel when he was making 2001 A Space Odyssey around 1966. It was Terry Southern who sent it to him, the hippie writer who collaborated on the script of Dr. Strangelove. But Kubrick didn't read the novel, though. Apparently, he was put off by the cover of the book, which at that time was the one with the bikers dressed in leather. And in 1970, he was thinking about making a film based on Arthur Schnitzler's tram novella, but his wife Christiana discouraged him because um, she didn't want him to focus on a story about marital infidelity. So she handed him the copy of A Clockwork Orange and said, look at this instead. And this time Kubrick was immediately captivated by the book. Um, I mean, he loved the plot, the characters, the ideas in it, And he also said that he was interested in how close the story was to fairy tales and myths, particularly in its deliberately heavy use of coincidence and plot symmetry. And uh, um, this is a structure that you can find often in Kubrick's films and in the novels that he chose to adapt. For example, the rise and fall of the main character in Barry Lyndon, or the first night and the second one in Eyes Wide Shut, and so on. And Kubrick um, wasn't particularly keen on realism, in fact, and he liked stories which lend themselves to explore a particular theme, which in the case of A Clockwork Orange is, I think, how to balance the individual's freedom with the need for a stable society. Okay, so uh, even even though he, he came across the novel under those circumstances, he didn't meet Burgess until much later, did he? Yeah, yeah, that's true, because they met for the first time only when the film was ready to be distributed. And Kubrick arranged a screening for Burgess at the Warner Bros. facility in London, which Burgess attended with his wife and one of their friends. And then Kubrick invited Burgess to dinner at his house that same evening. And the two discussed uh, uh, literature and music, with Burgess even playing on Kubrick's piano, an impromptu composition that combined Singing in the Rain with Beethoven's Ode to Joy. I think, um, yeah, I mean, they they, uh, were cordial, but it wasn't really a collaboration in terms of how 
the film was was made. And generally, was their relationship more more than just sort of working a working relationship? Did they did they socialize more than than uh, just about a Clockwork Orange? Uh, I don't know because it seems they only met in person for that occasion. And afterwards, they communicated via letter and telephone, which is always difficult to uh, ascertain how uh, intense the relationship was. Uh, there are only a few letters that survived. Uh, but this was not actually unusual for Kubrick because he kept uh, his relationship with writers mostly by telephone. So in this regard, uh, there is nothing unusual uh, between the two. And, and did Kubrick... Uh consult Burgess at all when he was adapting the script or or was it purely a, a work from the novel? Exactly. It was only a work from the novel because Kubrick called Burgess just once on the telephone while he was writing the screenplay and he only asked uh, a trivial matter about a song that is in the book. And actually, A Clockwork Orange was the first film that Kubrick adapted entirely on his own without any collaborator and he would do the same later uh, only with Barry Lyndon a couple of years later. And, but I think the, uh, this is because Kubrick uh, in an interview said that one would have to be lazy not to be able to find the answers to any questions within the text of the novel itself. So he thought that the story was perfectly developed and his work as an adapter was merely... Uh, a matter of selection and editing, because the book uh, was was clear enough. Did did Kubrick um, invade, invent any of his own aspects to the story? Did he bring anything to A Clockwork Orange that isn't in the book, or or is it all purely from from Burgess's original work? Uh, it is because I think the um, the film is very faithful to the novel, and in fact, if you compare the narrative structure and the story episodes between novel and film, you can see that it's basically like Kubrick said, he just discarded a few episodes and condensed others, uh, which is what you have to do when adapting any novel. Uh, he did not invent, uh, as you uh, suggested, uh, new scenes at all or new characters, uh, which is in fact something that he did when he adapted Barry Lyndon. So again, uh, everything that Kubrick needed for this particular story was already in Burgess' novel. A Clockwork Orange wasn't the only film that, that Burgess collaborated with, with Kubrick on. Can you tell us anything about Kubrick's attempt to film the story of Napoleon? Uh, yes, Burgess was involved in, in this uh, mammoth uh, project by Kubrick. They discussed the Napoleon project immediately, actually, at that dinner at the end of 1971. Burgess was to write a novel in the form of a symphony as a way to condense the life of Napoleon into a quick-paced narrative, which is suited for a feature film. And Burgess, in fact, produced a first draft, but when Kubrick read it in June 1972, he thought he didn't solve the problem of editing the events without trivializing history or character, and he didn't provide uh, re realistic dialogue either, meaning that in the script there was too much exposition, which is usually bad for a film. And Kubrick actually expressed these uh, feelings in a slightly awkward letter in which he also said that the, he hoped their friendship would survive the bad news. 
Right, and and the the script that Burgess wrote that that exists. Where where does that exist? It's in it's in the in the um, Burgess Foundation, and uh, later he used uh, what he produced uh, for Kubrick to uh, his um, uh, Napoleon Symphony novel. He reworked what he had done uh, for Kubrick as a, as an independent novel for himself. Yeah, and uh, of course, Napoleon Symphony is actually dedicated to. To Kubrick. Yeah, to the great to the great Stanley K, I presume the, the quotation, the dedication was. As well as a Clockwork Orange and uh Napoleon, the Burgess Foundation also has a photocopy of Arthur Schnitzler's Traum novel in the archive. That this was sent to Burgess by Kubrick. And you've already mentioned that Kubrick was working on yeah. an adaptation of Traum novel from quite relatively early in his career. And of course, this was eventually turned into Eyes Wide Shut. How, how was how how involved was Burgess with this adaptation? Mm, okay, uh, Kubrick had been trying to adapt from novella since at least the early seventies, so uh, the timing coincide uh, coincides with uh, that of A Clockwork Orange, and Kubrick virtually sought inputs from all the writers he was in touch with, for example, John Le Carré, Michael Herr, Diane Johnson, and Terry Southern. And he first wrote to Burgess about Tram Novella when Barry Lyndon was done uh, around 1976. After Burgess read it, they briefly discussed the problems connected with the adaptation, which for Kubrick were always how to solve, how to solve the mysteries in the last third of the narrative. Uh, I mean, who who is the woman at the orgy? Is Fridolin's life really in danger? What is the nature of her, of her sacrifice? And so on. And Kubrick approached Burgess again in 1986 during a break during uh, during a break in the shooting of Full Metal Jacket. But there is not much evidence whether Burgess provided any input because we only have a few letters. Uh, left, and we do not know whether they discussed the project on the telephone. Uh, but I would say that Burgess' involvement uh, was minimal in any case, because there is a handwritten note in the 1986 letter that implies Burgess never replied to Kubrick's request at that time. But I think we've got a, a letter from Burgess to Kubrick Mm-hmm. Um, say, saying that uh, he believed that the novel had to had to keep its nineteenth century yes. setting. Yeah, that letter was written by Burgess in the seventies after Kubrick approached him for the first time, and one could even say that this was probably one of the reasons why Kubrick, in the end, did not continue. Uh, to discuss the project with Burgess, at least in the 70s, because Kubrick was keen to do a contemporary adaptation of Tom Novella since uh, the beginning of the project. So maybe this difference of opinion was uh, the reason why Kubrick uh, seized uh, communication with Burgess about this uh, this project. And then he again tried uh, after Full Metal Jacket, but apparently that time it was Burgess who did not uh, want to uh, go further with his project. Okay, so essentially Kubrick and Burgess had a 
had a some sort of relationship for 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 nearly twenty years, I would say. Um, how did that uh, relationship end? Every writer who collaborated with Kubrick had a peculiar relationship. I mean, everyone is different. Uh, for example, Vladimir Nabokov wrote a screenplay for Lolita, but then Kubrick used that screenplay only in part. Or Gustav Hasford, who wrote The Short Timers, upon which Full Metal Jacket is based, was first hired as a consultant and then as a screenwriter, providing comments and revising what Kubrick and Michael Herr had written. Arthur Clarke uh, is another example, and he wrote a novel for Kubrick based on the um, two short stories of his and a number of ideas that they that uh, Kubrick and Clark discussed in detail because actually 2001 is really a novel by two authors so you can see here some similarities with the Napoleon project uh, uh, from from Burgess and probably um, Burgess, Burgess's experience was more similar to that of Stephen King who was only briefly consulted for the adaptation of The Shining but again, there are more differences than similarities because Kubrick took many liberties while adapting The Shining, while with A Clockwork Orange, he remained faithful to the source. So th I think the similarity in the end between all these authors and Burgess is in the level of attention that the writer received thanks to Kubrick making a film out of one of their books. Okay, and uh, I mean, one one of the things that that happened with with Burgess was the the release Stanley Kubrick released the screenplay of A Clockwork Orange uh, yeah. called Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. Uh, yeah. How how did Burgess feel about that? Well, very bad, I I would say, um, because he thought that Kubrick invaded his own field, and there is uh, I think Burgess wrote an introduction for. Um, for his um, uh, when because also Burgess wrote a, a theatrical adaptation of A Clockwork Orange later and then he included a bit about this particular book about Kubrick and he made fun of Kubrick uh, playing uh, with with his name distorting distorting him uh, sorry distorting its name in lubric and pubic and. <laughs> Well, I think Burgess was not pleased at all, let's put it that way. And um, yeah, perhaps these also contributed to the ongoing relationship between between the two. Um, for It just came to my mind that, for example, Burgess continued uh, complaining about A Clockwork Orange, uh, the film, because, in a sense, Burgess resented the notoriety that Kubrick's film brought to him, but at the same time, he enjoyed being on the spotlight. So even if he said he didn't want to talk about Clockwork Orange anymore many times, in fact, he never refrained himself from doing so. And he complained so much about the, the film in the press that at one point Kubrick said, and I quote, that he wished Burgess would stop being bitchy about it. Uh, does it, does that reflect uh, Kubrick's relationship with any of the other other writers? I, or, I mean, Stephen King, you mentioned, uh, had quite an unhappy time with, yeah. with Kubrick. Um, but 
does that does Burgess's sort of experience of voicing his his upset and and uh, his uh, his lack of lack of comfort with with the way his his uh, film was uh, his novel was adapted does that is that reflected with any of the other authors that that Kubrick adapted? Well, the only uh, other author who complained a lot in the press about. Uh, a Kubrick adaptation was, as you said, Stephen King, who for 40 years is still complaining about the quality of Kubrick's adaptation. But in King's um, case, I think the problem for King was that Kubrick took a very autobiographical type of novel for him and then twisted its plot uh, quite a lot. So basically... Um, and I know I'm sort of psychoanalyzing Stephen King a little bit, but I think that based on what I read uh, in in uh, Stephen King's essays about how he wrote The Shining, the, the novel was a sort of an exorcism for him to deal with his past as an alcoholic and his uh, aggressive tendencies uh, towards his own children. So he put into the... into uh, Jack Torrance, the main character, his his um, evil side, and then in in the novel uh, at the end you have Jack Torrance and Danny sort of uh, finding a moment together to reconcile, and everything is basically solved, and at least in terms of an emotional uh, conclusion to that to to their father son relationship. Whereas in Kubrick's film, this is not true at all, because Jack is mad from the beginning, as King's complained, uh, as King complained, sorry. And uh, I think that Stephen King saw in Kubrick's film uh, his alter ego not being able to solve his problems. So in the end, I think that King resented how Kubrick treated his main uh, character. For Burgess, it was a completely different thing. It was a matter of, it was a matter of being constantly under the spotlight, which for Burgess, I think, was a bit of uh, conflictual, because he loved the attention. At the same time, he resented the fact that he became famous for this particular novel, which for him was uh, not one of his best. Okay, and. Uh... Just a few final questions. Uh, are there any connections between A Clockwork Orange and Kubrick's other films, whether stylistically or, or thematically? No, uh, I think it was more like a case of Kubrick falling in love with this particular story and bringing it to the screen fairly quickly because the process of act- adaptation and production was pretty straightforward, which was unusual for Kubrick. So I see A Clockwork Orange as a quick film that Kubrick decided to do after his uh, 2001 Space Odyssey, a magnum opus, and as a substitute for another mammoth production that he wasn't able to start, uh, Napoleon. But then, of course, A Clockwork Orange is very much a Kubrick film, and you can feel his presence all over it. So you can find in it uh, several elements that chimes with his other films, like the exploration of the unconscious mind, with Alex being a, a sort of personification of the ego. And Kubrick was very fond of psychoanalytical theories 
And I think that you can see uh, this, uh, this side of Kubik's interests uh, reflected in, in, in A Clockwork Orange. Great. And, and how do you think A Clockwork Orange ranks in, in Kubrick's filmography? Well, it's certainly one of his most popular films, and it's been hugely influential in pop culture, music and the visual arts. It, uh, it cemented Kubrick's reputation as the most European of the American directors, as Burgess himself once called him. And uh, together with Dr. Strangelove and 2001, A Clockwork Orange made Kubrick one of the most important filmmakers ever. It's not necessarily my favorite Kubrick, I have to say. I prefer his more mysterious films. To me, um, A Clockwork Orange is like Full Metal Jacket, in a sense. It's very straightforward, extremely effective and masterful. And and what 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 do you think Kubrick's legacy is more more generally outside of a clockwork? <laughs> how much time do we have to answer this question? <laughs> I mean, how can you? It's not easy to encapsulate an artist's legacy, uh, but I, I would just say that, uh, in my opinion, Kubrick managed to do art films with the appeal of a Hollywood flick. Okay. That's as simple as that, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, how, how else can you put uh, Kubrick's legacy into a, a, a single sentence? I don't know. That's my, that's my best try, at least. Thanks, Filippo, for joining us. Uh, it's been fascinating to talk to you about uh, A Clockwork Orange and, and Kubrick. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation podcast. For more information about Anthony Burgess and how to support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.